Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. It was a crime that horrified the nation. 20 years ago today, the 10-year-old schoolgirls Jessica Chapman and Holly Wells were abducted and murdered in Soham, in Cambridgeshire. Good evening. Police in Cambridgeshire have staged a reconstruction of the last known movements of Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman. The 10-year-old girls went missing six days ago in their hometown of Soham. That summer, day after day, the story led the news and made every front page. The whole country watched aghast as concern for the missing girls morphed into horror when their bodies were found. For the police who investigated the crime and for the journalists sent to Soham, including the Times senior writer Sean O'Neill, it was an experience they still think about today. It made me think a lot harder about the impact you have, about how you approach a story like that. You're dealing with real trauma. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Soham, 20 years on. It had been on my mind that I wanted to write something about Soham, the horrible murders of Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman. I kept putting it off because the one person I wanted to speak to was Chris Stevenson, the detective who cracked the case. But I knew he was ill. I knew he had Parkinson's and hadn't been well for a while. But as the anniversary approached, I just thought, I'll give him a call and plant the seed with him that maybe we could sit down and have a chat about it, about how it impacted on, I think, all of us who were in that summer, 2002. He didn't answer the phone. I left him a message. And he, he rang back about an hour later or so, and he'd been picking gooseberries in his back garden. He wasn't keen on the idea at first, but he said, we'll do it. He said, this would be my last word on the subject. This remains a hugely sensitive issue, especially for the families of the two girls. So we talked it through, and then I travelled up to his home up in Lincolnshire. Testing one, two, three. Three, two, one. Okay. We sat for hours going over stuff and 
it was really enlightening. It was a really open, frank conversation. And I've been asked many times by former colleagues, would I do it again, if asked? And comment made that lots of senior investigating officers would run a mile from this one, if they could. But I just felt when asked that I was prepared for it and had the ability to do it, so I said yes. What was it like, having lived through all of that at the same time, what was it like to sit down and talk again? It came really easily. And at one point he said, it's such an unusual kind of defining moment in all our lives. And he said, you know, I've dealt with a lot of journalists over the years, but it's very rarely a journalist going to ring me up and ask me about a case 20 years ago. And there's so much to talk about. Sean, for you, as a reporter, when did you become aware of the story? I was in holiday in Devon with my daughter and she was about eight, just about to turn eight at the time. and. As the story emerged, she was full of questions. And it was the first time she'd really taken an interest in my job. But she was asking, are you reporting on this? What do you think happened to these girls? Do you think they'd be frightened? Because they you know, roughly the same age this was, mm. to use the cliche, every parent's nightmare. That made me want to go there and cover the story. So I do remember truncating my holiday and ringing my news editor and saying, I want to go there. It's been 20 years now. For people who were around at the time, I think a lot of us remember, it's almost the summer of Soham, because the whole country stopped yeah. and became obsessed with this case. It was the front page of every paper. Yeah. It was the first thing on, on the news bulletins. And remind us of the case. So it begins on Sunday the 4th of August 2002. It's, it's a, a summer's day. Two school friends, Holly and Jessica, were together. They went to Holly's home where Holly's parents were doing a barbecue and the kids were in and out of the garden. At one point, the two girls were wearing these Manchester United tops. They had their photograph taken, standing in front of a grandfather clock in, in, in the living room. And it had the time on it. It was four minutes past five in the evening, just before they disappeared less than two hours before they were murdered. That was the photograph that was issued with the appeals for information by the family, by the police. And it was a photograph that travelled all over the world. Initially, it was thought that the girls had disappeared. What we now know that happened is they went out to buy sweets from the vending machine at the local sports centre. And they were caught on CCTV there around about 6.30ish. About 15 minutes later, they crossed the path of Ian Huntley, who was the caretaker at Soham Village College. They had gone to his house because his partner, Maxine Carr, was their classroom assistant at primary school. So they so wanted, somebody they knew. Somebody they knew. They wanted to see Maxine. They asked how she was because they knew she hadn't got the job permanently. That was ostensibly the reason they went to the house. They were never seen again. By later that evening, the families suddenly realise the girls aren't around. They start searching and eventually they call the police. And there's quite a good initial police response. The uniformed officers who come out, they have search dogs with them. They take it seriously and they realise this is not a normal missing from home case. This is two kids together 
no history of going missing from stable families. The officers on the ground request help from headquarters at Cambridgeshire Police and say, look, we need to escalate this. But somebody at headquarters on a Sunday night in August says, now let's leave it to the morning. They'll probably turn up. Oh. And that's a crucial decision in hindsight. What that means is that you have lost what detectives call the golden hours, the first hours of any inquiry when suspects are off guard or, you know, they've done, in Huntley's case, done something sudden and dramatic and violent and rash. If he'd have been questioned properly at the time, maybe this story wouldn't have become so elongated. He wouldn't have had time to destroy evidence and hide bodies and all the horrible things he did. When that story first hit the press, first hit the national consciousness, really, it was as a, a missing persons story. The detective leading the case at the time believed that this was an abduction. That was his skill set. He was a specialist hostage negotiator. For some reason, he decided he was dealing with a case in which the girls had been kidnapped, taken away by someone. And they put out major appeals for sightings. There may be members of the public out there who don't realise that they have seen something significant, or if they have seen something, don't think it's important to us. And I will appear to those people to please contact us. And they got bombarded with information from all over the country. Girls were seen here and there, girls were seen getting into the back of a van, girls were seen in a car, and the media reacted hugely. This was a huge story. What was it like arriving in Soham at the time? It was quite extraordinary. The whole media focus, the kind of headquarters, if you like, was around the school. All around it were parked satellite vans, TV vans, camera crews and reporters milling around all over the place because the school was where the police conducted their media briefings and press conferences and appeals and things like that. You had a whole media circus arriving in a little village. In a, in a small town, there's almost a beast called the Fleet Street Pack. You get a story like this, two, three, four, five reporters from every paper simultaneously competing with one another for information. And that's arrived in a town that's already under shock. It's yeah. suffering a hell of a yeah. shock. And at the beginning, I think the town didn't mind this. Everybody was focused on finding these two girls. Every shop had a poster in the picture of the two girls in the shop window, every house virtually. And there was a kind of sense of pulling together, certainly at the beginning. How did it become such a huge story? I think it would always have been a huge story. You don't often get a crime story where two children go missing at the same time. But what really amplified it was the picture. And I think the timing, it was August. Tony Blair was just into his second term. Parliament was in recess. There was no politics. There was very little other news. I got a sense quite early on that the media was driving the investigation almost. Tabloid newspapers were offering six-figure rewards for information. Chris told me that the incident room in the first two weeks dealt with 15,000 calls. The whole thing was just creaking flooded. under the weight of, of, of this information. And it lost focus. You know, there was no defining focus for the inquiry. You know, the police didn't know how to cope with this media interest. And that, that media beast needed to be fed all the time. It was this scattergun thing and the media mood very quickly turned and it became 
very critical of the police, like, you know, how can you not solve this crime? And for you, realising that it's gone from being a missing persons inquiry to something darker, it very quickly becomes a double murder. Well, that, that doesn't happen really for a couple of weeks, really. That police line remains for about 10 days. This is an abduction. But behind the scenes, Chris Stevenson has been asked internally to review the investigation after about three or four days. And then after nine or 10 days, Scotland Yard are asked to review what's going on and make an assessment of the investigation. And Chris tells me in our conversation a story I'd never heard before about the day the Scotland Yard reviewing officer arrived, a very experienced homicide detective. Mm. And Chris is in the foyer at Cambridgeshire Police Headquarters when this guy, David Begg, turns up. He says, can you take me to see the deputy chief constable? Yes, of course. And Chris said it was a very short, blunt conversation. Begg said to the deputy chief constable, I've got two important questions. Is this the biggest investigation that Cambridgeshire has ever undertaken? Yes, of course. Have you got your best trained and most senior detective in charge of it? Probably not. I suggest you rethink that, sir. Thank you very much. And left it like that. Wow. And the next morning, 8 o'clock in the morning, Chris Stevenson was appointed to lead the investigation. Cambridge had thrown resources at it from all around the country, but there were a lot of headless chickens who hadn't got strict direction as to what they were doing. People were following each other around doing the same job and what have you. So that first morning, I just wanted to provide clarity. So on a chalkboard, I set up the structure of what I wanted. It was going to be long days. Tell us about Chris. What was his background at this point? At this point, he had been a police officer for 28 years, mostly as a detective fairly late entrant into policing. He joined the police when he was 25. Chris only has two fingers on one hand. His father was a butcher. Oh, wow. When he was two, he lost three fingers in the sausage machine in his father's butcher shop. And he always thought, growing up, this would stop him being a police officer. So he became a clerical assistant at a local factory. And one day he was playing in the factory hockey team He had a ferocious battle on the hockey pitch with an opponent. They had a beer afterwards, and this guy turned out to be a police recruiting sergeant. What luck? Yeah, Chris said, oh, I wanted to be a police officer, but I don't think they'd ever have me. And he says, if you can play hockey like that, you can definitely be a police officer. (laughs) So come 2002, he's been a successful detective for 28 years. But this is a huge inquiry. His predecessor is struggling, visibly struggling. I did a press conference that was, you could see that this man was really struggling with the weight of the inquiry and the fact that they haven't got anywhere yet. The next day, the Sun headline was, not one clue. And that's the atmosphere in which Chris steps in. Now, what I find most fascinating, I think, is he said what made him ready for this investigation was the fact he'd had a breakdown 18 months before. The story he told me was in about December 2000, he was a detective superintendent. He was in his uh, senior officer's office one morning when he suddenly had what he called a wobbly. 
Suddenly, I just completely overwhelmed. I thought I had a heart attack. The GP said, no, it's the stress of what you've been doing for 20-plus years. I saw my GP, signed me off. Your heart's fine. He said, the trouble is your head is full. He said, you are up to here, and this is the body reacting to uh, can't cope anymore. 20 years of investigating horrible crimes. Horrible crimes and dealing with rape cases, murder cases, uh, child abuse cases, and all the grief of the other people that you take on and make your own mm. and try and resolve. But curiously, his police force at the time seemed to have had a very enlightened approach to mental health problems. You were able to go and get confidential counselling. I had a brilliant counsellor and it enabled me to offload all of the issues that had built up. And when Soham hit me, I'm convinced that that was one of the major reasons why I was able to cope, because I would uh, offloaded all those issues and problems. By the time Soham came around August 2002, he'd cleared his mind, he had coping mechanisms in place to deal with the stress. And when this happened, he was ready. And when Chris stepped into this role, firstly, there was a, a media storm around it and around the failures. How did he deal with all of that? He started the whole investigation again. There were no bodies, but he decided this was a murder inquiry and he was going to treat it like a murder inquiry. And interestingly, on the morning he was appointed, he was promoted to detective chief superintendent just to make clear that he was in charge. And for Chris, totally changing the investigation, starting from scratch, how does that go? He starts by concentrating on focusing minds and focusing activity. As he said, they had about 400 officers in this case. People had been drafted in from forces all over the place. It was dysfunctional. There were, there were a number of events that began to happen very, very quickly. And the first of those was the discovery that when Jessica's mobile phone was turned off or smashed or whatever happened to it, it sent a signal to a telephone mast. But it didn't send the signal to the usual mast that covered Soham. It sent oh. one to, to slightly further away. That mast could only pick up signals from three places in Soham. In actual fact, it turns out one of the places where it could have been switched off was outside Huntley's house, and the time coincided with the time that he was talking to them, within a few minutes. Directly outside in Huntley's house. Wow. And the intelligence cell head uh, rang me that Thursday night, quite late on, and said, this is looking interesting. So very quickly, he goes, what do we know about Ian Huntley? This man has to be the priority focus of the inquiry the earlier inquiry had ruled out Huntley as a suspect. Why was that? I will never know. And when Chris goes, well, OK, so he's been ruled out, but we must have a statement. He's a witness. He says he spoke to the girls that evening. And the statement is one and a half pages of A4. And he's like completely shocked by this. I said, what do we know about this caretaker? And he said, well, we've got a page and a half statement. But Humberside don't seem to know anything about him. So I said, right, we'll see you in the morning, brief me then, we'll decide what to do. Friday morning, we're up and running. 
his thought pattern then was, right, we need to get this guy in for a, a significant witness interview. And that means getting him in, videotaping him, putting a, a long string of questions to him and nailing down his account. And it's staggering that hadn't been done previously. If you think if that had been done much earlier in the, in the inquiry, his cover story and his ability to destroy evidence would have been mm. really constrained. And his partner, Maxine, who had given him this alibi, said she was with them all weekend, they'd cooked a Sunday roast. It would have been discovered that she wasn't there at all. She was in Grimsby visiting her mother that weekend and he was alone in the house. With the net finally closing in on Ian Huntley, the case came dangerously close to being derailed. We'll have more in just a moment, after a quick word from a colleague. I'm Christina Lamb. I'm Chief Foreign Correspondent of the Sunday Times, and I mostly cover conflict around the world. I particularly focus on what happens to women in war. And the reason that we can do this kind of reporting is thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. So please subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Chris Stevenson had been brought in to overhaul the Soam investigation. He now had evidence linking Jessica's phone to the address of the school caretaker, Ian Huntley. But when Huntley was brought in for questioning, it was not as a suspect but as a witness. In retrospect, it was a risky move. I hadn't thought about this at the time, but yes, and Chris said he, a lot of people told him afterwards, 
that was a very risky decision. It's risky because he clearly thinks he's a suspect, mm. but he doesn't treat him as a suspect, he treats him as a witness. That means Huntley is not cautioned, he's not read his rights, he's not told he has the right to remain silent. So they take him into police station video recording suite and he's interviewed at length. And that interview proved crucial in the minds of the detectives because Huntley is asked to describe what the girls were like when he last saw them. He starts talking about Holly being slim and Chris said he's watching this back on videotape and he goes, My, he said the alarm bells started ringing immediately because yeah. who describes a child as slim? That's yeah. a description of an adult. Huntley says they were wearing Manchester United tops. And then he drops his head and for 55 seconds, complete silence. And the, the interviewing officer says nothing. And then he lifts his head and he said, I can't remember anything else. And in the mind of the detective, that is, Chris says, what he thought was that he was describing the two girls lying in the ditch where he had left their bodies. And he'd gone back to that deposition site and tried to burn the bodies. And Chris thinks that's what he was describing and remembering in that moment, especially in those 50 seconds of silence. So he, in his mind, goes, this is our man. But that's not enough. You've got to prove it, haven't you? When a case comes to trial, you can't use that interview. Yeah. It's not evidence. Because he hasn't been. He hasn't been cautioned, yeah. How do they get to the point where he can be charged? They have Huntley and Carr under surveillance. They're released after their interviews and they're placed under covert surveillance. And they're very forensically aware of this, or at least Huntley is. You know, at one point, they're in the car park of the hotel where police have put them up because they're searching the house. So they're in a hotel and they go out to have a crucial conversation. They go out into the car park and they're walking around. So the bugs the police have planted in the room can't pick them up. Wow. Can't hear what they're saying. You ain't gonna believe this, boss. They are now walking around the hotel car park in deep conversation, and we can't get near enough to hear what they're saying. We had got them, we thought, catered for everything. But no, Huntley and Carr had their crucial conversation, the one that I think may have implicated them in those early stages, and we lost it because of that. That was the most frustrating hour or two of the inquiry at that point. But forensically, things are moving very quickly. We have the mobile phone evidence now, and then in an art building at the school, they find the shredded and burnt remains of, of the children's clothing. The moment for us when we knew that they were dead was actually Friday night at about 11 o'clock, because that's when head of the search team, he rang me and he said, Chris, there's been a significant find at Soham at the college. So I said, what is it? He said, we found the girls' clothes. And they are in such a state that they can't possibly be alive. And somebody's tried to burn them. And that is an art building to which Huntley has a key. I think that was probably the, the most discomforting moment for me was the chances of finding the live were never ever going to be good but 
you always cling to that hope. The next day, the Saturday morning, two bodies are discovered by someone out walking their dog and they're in a ditch up a track near Lake and Heath Air Base where Huntley used to go playing spotting. And he makes another controversial decision at this stage. Rather than allowing a forensic dentist to go in and identify the bodies immediately, he says, that person's got to stay away until I get botanists, insect experts, all kinds of forensic experts who can gather crime scene evidence from the ditch and from around the bodies. That has to be done first. There would have been pressure to tell the families as soon as possible that we have found the children's bodies and identified them. Yeah. But his focus was very much on, we have got to get this man behind bars and we have got to get a successful prosecution. It is with great sadness that I have to tell you the following news. It may be some days yet before we are able to positively identify the two bodies. However, we are certain, as we possibly can be tonight, that they are those of Holly and Jessica. Holly and Jessica's families have been told this terrible news. And for you, in Soham, covering all of this, as the news starts to break, they now have bodies. What is that like? That was a real kind of impactful moment, I think, for all of us who were, because they, they made the announcement in the churchyard at St Andrew's Church in Soham. And I had a little girl who was eight at home, and I'll never forget, I went back to my car, sat down to file my copy, and I just, my eyes were stinging with tears. I was, you know, yeah. I wasn't just a reporter doing a story, I was a human being who was all too heavily involved in this horrific drama. It's, um, it all moves very fast over that weekend. On the Friday afternoon, what we know publicly is not what we know now. So on the Friday afternoon, we were thinking, a lot of the reporters are thinking, this is stalled. Then a colleague, somebody on another paper, beckoned me over and said, I've just had a phone call. She said, don't go home. And a couple of minutes later, the police are going into Huntley's house and leading around for the witness interviews. And suddenly we go, this is all falling into place. Now, wow. You know, we began to realize you know it's people go all right Huntley suddenly a suspect this guy who's been helping out and chatting to reporters all the time so he wasn't he's, somebody you'd seen around you'd chat you say, seen him around all the time he was mm. at, at all the press conferences he was hanging around the back of the room when the police did public appeals some reporters had interviewed him one guy Brian Farmer of the Press Association had actually been so unnerved by his interview with Huntley that he made a report to police really yeah when Huntley is charged there was also obviously the realisation that his partner, Maxine Carr, has been lying. This is somebody who was a teaching assistant who knew the girls and yet somehow didn't tell the truth about this. And she was demonised in the press as much mm. as Al Huntley at the time. But just remind us a bit about her role in all of so, this. So like, she was the teaching assistant. She was not there the weekend the girls were murdered. She was with her mum in Grimsby. He is a ferociously jealous individual and he has a history with police in Humberside of sex with underage girls, suspected rape, 
wow. indecent assaults. This intelligence is not shared with Cambridgeshire Police. One of the things Stevenson did quite early on was he sent two of his own officers up to Humberside to make, start making their own inquiries. And said within hours, they were reporting back. There's lots of suspicion about this guy. He's got a history. But Maxine, as you say, Maxine was demonised. She provided a false alibi and a cover story for him, which she kept up during that initial police interview. Now, I very quickly came to the conclusion that she didn't know he was a murderer, but also she was terrified of him. Mm. And this emerged during the trial and it emerged during our reporting that he was a violent, nasty piece of work. It was, you know, it was coercive control, we would call it now. But I think she felt she had to cover for him or he would possibly kill her or hurt her or, you know, he, he told her, you know, I've been in trouble with the police in the past. If they find out about that, then I'll get in trouble. You've got to cover for me. But she was afraid of him and she continued to be afraid of him pretty much until we got to the Old Bailey and she gave very dramatic evidence at the trial where she turned on him and said, I'm not going to be held responsible for what that thing in that box did to those children. And tell me about the trial, because before it had even begun, it was almost derailed. Yeah, almost when that two weeks in summer comes to an end with the discovery of the bodies mm. and the, the horrible realisation that this is a double murder. Their work begins then because they have to build a watertight prosecution case. They have to not only prove that Huntley did it, they have to prove that nobody else did it. So it's a mammoth task. Huntley has been pretty ruthless in destroying evidence. They have extraordinary forensic experts brought in. There's a forensic geologist who proves that Huntley's car has been up the track where the bodies were found because at some point it has to cross a chalk seam that is pretty unique in East Anglia. Wow. And is 97 million years old. And there are fragments, dust from that chalk seam on the underside of his car. That's remarkable. It's incredible. But as you said, the trial was nearly derailed before it ever got to court because Huntley tries to kill himself. He's on medication in prison and he starts hiding pills in tea bags. And one day he takes an overdose. And for about 24 hours, you know, when Stevenson is told it's touch and go, he might not live. And... Uh, it's a point in, our, in my conversation with him where he became quite emotional because he said it was one of the things that made everybody stop in their tracks and go, this guy might never face justice. I wanted to see him get found guilty. Drove into headquarters and the chief's light is on. So I thought, I'd better go and brief the chief. And I told him what happened. He said, but just remember one thing. Why has Huntley done that? So I said, well, he's fed up a living, I suppose. He said, no, he's just beginning to see the evidence that you've got against him. And that's the route he's taken, because we thought he was going to die. And he said, it's only what you and your team have done. The work that your team have done and the evidence you've put together is why he's forced into that. Don't lose sight of that. Tell us about your memories of that trial, because by then you had followed this case 
day in, day out, mm. for an awfully long time. What was it like covering that trial? Two things stick out. One was, what was Huntley's past? That's what we were all trying to find out. And I was sitting in a calf near the Old Bailey one morning at the trial, and somebody walked past, dropped an envelope in front of me and walked on. Wow. Opened the envelope, and inside is a police memo covering the years 95 to 99, which lists against Huntley four rape allegations, an alleged indecent assault on an 11-year-old girl, four incidents of sex with girls under 16. But somehow, he still got a job working in a school. For you, receiving that, that memo, I mean, does that sort of thing happen often? No. <laughs> no, it doesn't, ha- it doesn't happen very often. And it was one of those moments where you just go, oh my God. We knew some of it from our own investigations and inquiries and reporting. But to actually see it in black and white, that the police knew and that one police force had failed to share this information with another police force. It's shocking. Was quite extraordinary. And for Chris Stevenson, who'd worked incredibly hard getting the case to trial, what are his memories of that whole process of the trial itself? One of my abiding memories is Stevenson was completely calm. He was just this kind of beacon of serenity. You know, he'd come into the canteen to get a cup of tea or something, and, and he'd just look at him and go, why is he not biting his nails and sweating profusely? And when I asked him about this, he said, his brother used to ring him up all the time and say, are you not worried? Are you not nervous? He said, nope, I've done my job. I've presented this case to the best of my ability. I believe I've got a watertight case. If he's not convicted, it's something to do with the jury system, not me. Where he says he almost cracked was at the end... He has to read a media statement Mm. where one of the things he asks is he would like to be able to sit down with Huntley and if Huntley had any decency, he would tell the truth about what happened now that he's been convicted. I would have loved to have been able to sit down with him and just talk it through, but I don't think he's that sort of guy. And uh, as far as I know, he has been interviewed, but I have been reassured that all efforts to obtain his account failed. And whether that would bring any comfort to Holly and Jessica's families or not, I don't know. But I think for the detective, it's a bit of unfinished business. It's been 20 years now. This was a case that captured the nation's imagination. Everybody felt invested in Mm. trying to find out what happened to these two girls. Beyond that, though, it feels like it has had a lasting impact. What happened after the trial was we had a a public inquiry, the the Bichard inquiry, which revealed the extent of the failings, particularly of Humberside Police, to share intelligence. So what this has led to is a much more efficient system of police intelligence gathering and sharing of information. I help run a kids' football team. Mm. I have to have an enhanced disclosure and barring service check, you know, what they used to call a criminal records check, just to help out with the kids' football team. And that system arises out of the sole murders. What was it like for you, after two decades, going back and looking at this case again? As a reporter, you remember this as a very dramatic event. As a human being, looking back on it, you go, did I behave correctly? 
did I behave respectfully? Was I wrapped up in my job or was I thinking about the impact of my presence in this little village? When you're a young reporter, it's all adrenaline and get the story and move on to the next story and you're charging and charging through things and you're really glad you don't do a real job that's based in an office all the time. <laughs> but I think Soham really made me feel like what you do and how you behave has an impact on the lives of the people you're reporting on. Has it been helpful after 20 years to go back and think about it now? It's been really interesting talking to Chris for us such a long time and finding it so easy to talk to him and having so much to discuss and so much we remembered about it. Mm. I think everybody who is involved has lasting memories and it had a lasting impact on them. They would have been 30 years old now. They might have had kids and families of their own. They would have had careers and lives and all of it cut short by one man's perversion, rage, anger, jealousy, violence, you know, a crime without motive that he refuses to explain. But he has said, apparently, he was reported a couple of years ago to have said he thinks about them every day and, and he's full of remorse. So one of the things I asked Chris was, did he think Huntley should be forgiven? And Chris is a practicing Methodist. He has a strong mm. Christian faith. But he felt his faith didn't stretch far enough to forgive this man. How can you ever forgive somebody for doing what he did to those two young girls? Christian teaching says you should. Everyone to their own. I personally can't bring myself to forgive him. Huntley is serving life with a minimum term of 40 years before he can apply for parole. And his view was that Huntley should serve those 40 years and beyond should never be released. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, The Times senior writer, Sean O'Neill. You can find all of Sean's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers on this episode were Chris Wade and Taryn Siegel. The executive producer today was James Shield, and sound design was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow with part seven of our special series, Last Man Standing, about the missing British journalist John Cantley. If you haven't heard the rest of the series, please do go back and have a listen. You can find Last Man Standing wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>